which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether your brother, whether you still had another brother? But they said, The man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know? He would say, Bring your brother down. Judah said to his father Israel, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. We, as well as you and our little ones, I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame for you before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present a little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio, nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also. Arise, return to the man, and may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man, so that he will release you to you, your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money in their hand, and Benjamin, and they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Verse 16 to 18. When Joseph saw Benjamin with him, he said to his house steward, Bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to the house to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we are being brought in that he may seek an occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Uh, Our gracious God and Father, we come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the strength and power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would be with us this morning. As we are considering the test of these men, help us also to see how uh, you test each and every single one of us and how you will not allow, allow us out of the exam room without us first passing with flying colors for your glory and our good. Help our hearts, our minds, and our ears, Lord. Give us eyes of faith this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated.
I do greet you again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and welcome you once more on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. The last time that we considered the book of Genesis, we looked at these two brothers, um, these not two brothers, but these brothers who were being drawn out of the shadows by God. These brothers have sinned against God. They've also sinned against their brother, Joseph, and they've sinned against their father. And God is little by little drawing back the covers of their sin, exposing their guilt. And I think if we survey these chapters and the generations of Jacob, we will discover that there are actually a series of tests that are being distributed among the brothers and among the people of God. And the one who is distributing the test, handing out the test, if you will, is God Almighty himself. Joseph was being tested. Joseph was in the midst of a test of patience and self-control and forgiveness. We see Joseph in chapter 42 and chapter 43 beginning to feel the strain more and more. His self-control is being tested. Uh, His emotions are being tested. It's hard for him to hold them back. He's seeing these men who have, these brothers who have uh, betrayed him and dealt harshly with him. He's being tested. Jacob, too, was in the midst of a test, a test of God's good providence, uh, the test of Wondering and even proclaiming all of these things are against me in chapter 42. He's in a test to discover if God is really his God. Or if as brother Bobby said this morning, or if he's having other gods before the one true God. And the brothers are also being tested as well. Uh, They are being tested to see whether or not they are truly repentant, whether or not they truly are the people of God. Uh, We look at their attitudes toward their father, uh, their attitude toward their brother and their brothers, Joseph and Benjamin. See, their attitude toward the, as all they knew him to be, the Lord of Egypt. And in each, each time, each occasion, they are being tested. In this chapter, we start to see the most stressful part of being tested. Do you know what the most stressful part of being tested is? What's the most stressful part of taking a test? I would say finding out the results. How did I do? We have some teachers here. All of us have been students at one point. I'd say the most stressful part of taking a test is finding out how did I do? And now in this chapter, we are beginning to see, and even in the previous chapter, we are beginning to see some of the the results coming back. Some of the, the results of the test are being returned to the men. Some of the grades are being revealed. And we are beginning to see in some of them the, the triumph of faith, that is the the excitement of realizing 
they are doing well. I say some of the test results are coming back because uh, we are not seeing that the exams are completed in this chapter. The tests will continue for Jacob and for his sons and even for Joseph. The final exam has not yet been passed out. And as we look at the life of Joseph and the life of Jacob and the life of these brothers, uh, it is almost as if there's a banner over their lives that says, silence, exams in process or progress. Not a quick test either. Not a test that will last just a couple of hours, a couple of days. It's not a take-home exam. This exam is a lifelong one. One that you and I, I think, know very well if you are a believer in Christ. That your exams never end. How many times have you called your wife or your husband or your brother or your sister or your friends and family or a brother in Christ and said to them, I've just experienced this difficulty and I don't think I did a very good job. I don't think I did very well. And if they are a believer, they may say to you, well, there'll be another test. There'll be another one. We might think of our lives and even the lives of Jacob and his sons as kind of a boot camp. This long testing, it's a continual assessment and results are slowly coming in. One of the lessons that we learn from the life of Joseph is that God is in no rush, is he? When it comes to your and my holiness, God is in no rush. When it comes to our sanctification, God is in no hurry. We are in a hurry, but God is in no hurry. We learn that from our perspective, God works slow. God is is always on time. His timing is perfect. But from our perspective, God works slow. We think of the length of time that Joseph was a, a slave in Egypt. I think of the time that he God takes here for Joseph in Egypt, as his brothers have come, even. Not just Joseph as a slave, but also Joseph as an exalted prime minister. And yet God is still not done testing him. His brothers have come. There, I believe, is probably a desire for Joseph to immediately go out and to embrace them. And even in this, there seems to be a slowness. It is said that The brothers could have been gone for at least two years. How long was Joseph in prison? That is, after he was falsely accused. Two years. So even now it seems as though the the Lord is uh, working slowly in the life of Joseph. God works in his own perfect time. And as it seems slow to us, I think that one of the lessons that we learn is patience and faith as God works in us. In this chapter, we are going to see some preliminary grades returning, but no one is completely out of the exam room yet. 
This morning, with God's help, we shall consider the three parties or persons that are being tested. First, let's deal with the brothers tested. Number one, the brothers tested. If we look at some of the early results of these tests, we can see that the brothers in chapter 42 are finally thinking about God. In chapter 42, it's the very first time that they evoke, say the name of God, and and they say it in a most mysterious way, don't they? What is this that God has done to us? After all that they have experienced with the the Lord of Egypt, that is Joseph, Zaphonaphaneah, they finally come to a place where they are asking themselves and even asking God, what has God done to us? And that certainly was a promising result, wasn't it? We see finally conviction out of these men. Confession even. We are truly guilty concerning our brother, they said. Uh, They begin to confess their sins. They know that they have done wrong. But the question that is still looming over their sin is not whether or not they know that they have done wrong, not whether or not they will confess that they have done wrong, but whether or not they will turn from their sin, whether or not they have truly repented. Last week, we considered God was, was squeezing uh, uh, the, the uh, pressure in and around these men. Uh, the walls were closing in on them, if you will, And they have no place to run, no place to hide. God is calling them to repent and and trapping them at at every turn. And and now they're acknowledging, yes, we have sinned, we admit it, but will they turn from it? And it looks promising for, for Reuben. You might remember last time we saw that Reuben makes a pledge to his father. He says, I will protect Benjamin. I will look after him. I bring him home. And if I, if I don't do this, you may put my two sons to death. And Reuben may have believed that this was a, a wise idea, but you could almost see in your mind's eye the fact that it was a horrible idea on the, on the face of Jacob. Imagine Jacob hearing the horror of, of possibly putting his two grandsons to death. He's already lost a son. Why does he want to put to death two of his grandsons? Nice try, Reuben, but let's take that question all over again. Let's let's try that question again. Reuben appears, though, to display some sense of guilt and regret. I believe one of the earliest, though, and most impressive results that comes back from this exam is found with Judah. Judah is not, he is not the oldest. Judah is not even the second oldest or the third oldest. He's the, the fourth in line. And Judah really, in chapter 43, comes to the fore. He says to his father in verse 2, after his father says, go back again and buy us a little food, as if it was just down the street. Go back again and buy us a little food. Because the grain has run out and necessity now breaks this stalemate 
And Judah says to his father, steps up, explains the problem, and says, the man solemnly warned us, you shall not see my face unless your brother, that is Benjamin, unless your brother is with you. Judah goes on to say, in fact, he swore, he swore by the life of Pharaoh, you will not see my face. You will not receive any bread unless Benjamin, the one remaining son from Rachel, comes back with you. Judah comes to the fore and we see him. He's speaking respectfully and yet he's also speaking firmly to his father. He says, Father, there is only one way to get food in Egypt. We must go to the Lord of the land. And he swore that our youngest brother must be with us. So that if, if Benjamin comes, we will go to Egypt. But if Benjamin does not come, we cannot go. The man swore it. We will not see his face. This is what we must do, Father. And the father complains, why did you tell him that you had a younger brother? Why did you even mention it? And again, Judah speaks up and he speaks respectfully. And it seems as though all of the brothers are speaking at this time. Father, we are simply, we're simply answering the man's question. Uh, the man asked how our father was. The man asked about our brothers and if we had any more, how could we possibly know that he would request our youngest brother to come down? It's almost as if he knew more about us than we knew about ourselves. And isn't that the way the word of God is when we stand under faithful preaching sometimes? When the gospel comes with power, there are times when the word pulls off our covers, doesn't it? When the word comes with power and authority and clarity and faithfulness, the word often asks us questions that, that we don't want to answer. And even questions that we wish would have never been asked. Those awkward questions, you know them. Those questions that are about relationships. Those questions that we don't want to talk about. Those questions about some of the actions that we have done that we thought nobody knew. And we can sit in a service where the word of God is faithfully preached. And it could be as though God himself were saying to us, confess it and repent of it. Do you have a father, Joseph says? How is he doing, Joseph says? Do you have any other brothers, Joseph says? You can imagine these men saying of all of the questions that you could have asked, not that one. You see, in the previous chapter, they even acknowledge we had another brother even. But he's no more. And he's standing right in front of them. Isn't that the way the word often comes? At times as though you may feel that someone has whispered into the minister's ear and told them things about your very life. And it seems as though sometimes he knows more about you then even maybe you know about yourself. It's not the minister who knows. It's the Lord. 
The Lord coming with His Word, and His Word is a sword, isn't it? His Word comes with a sword, and it cuts to the joint. It cuts to the marrow. It gets down to the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts and reveals us. Here then is Judah. And we are asking the question in this exam, has Judah really changed? Has he really changed? Has God really taken hold of the heart of Judah? Has God really exposed Judah, his sin in his heart, in such a way that he now grieves over his sin and hates his sin and wants to turn from his sin? Has God shown Judah the mercy of God in Jesus Christ? In such a way that he has turned from his sin and that he now hates his sin. That he has turned to God. Has he turned to God and has he desired now with a new heart and with a a new sense of God in his holiness. Has he turned to God with a, a new desire to live after him with all of his heart in full obedience to God. And let me ask you. Is that the kind of repentance that you have experienced? Do you hate sin now? Do you want to pursue God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, soul, and strength? Do you desire holiness in your life? During family worship, my wife and I were explaining repentance to our son. And saying that when one repents, there must be a turning from sin. And in order for one to turn from that path of sin, they must be convinced that they are on the wrong path. They must confess their error. I'm going the wrong way. This is a conviction and a confession. We explain that it's like a man who is driving a hundred miles an hour towards a cliff that has a, a drop with a bottomless pit. We can plead from the man, with the man, turn from this way. You are headed toward destruction. But he must know why he's going the wrong way. And before he repents and turns around, he must be convinced that it is the wrong way. He must be convicted that his way is the wrong way and that there is a better way. And he must confess, you are right. I'm going in the wrong direction. Let me turn from my own way to God's way. This is what has happened to Judah. You remember who Judah is. You remember the difficulty that we had working through and walking through chapter 38. The man who was so wicked that he raised wicked sons who also uh, were so wicked that God put them to death. Very few times, but at least the only time in all of Genesis that we hear God taking the action of putting a man to death because of his wickedness found in the book of Genesis the first time. And the, the, the second time that we see it is when we see it with his second son. This is how vile and wicked this man Judah was until God captured his heart, irresistibly drew him to himself.
my wife and I, <laughs> we received a comment on our YouTube last night, almost around the same time, from a man who was commenting on a video by Greg Laurie, who is debunking Calvinism, saying that Calvinism is ungodly, that Calvinism is unbiblical. In my response, I usually don't respond on YouTube, and I learned that it was a year ago that I said anything about it. I think I've matured now. But I said to him, it sounds as though Greg Laurie doesn't understand the difference between the doctrines of grace and hyper-Calvinism, which is what he was explaining. Someone responded to me last night. His name is Mark. He also responded to my wife because, lo and behold, we both commented on the video. And his response is, what doesn't he understand? Irresistible grace, and excuse my language, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll trans, I'll change the words, he says, because irresistible grace is hogwash. That's not what he said, but that's what he, RBC's translation will be. No, it's not hogwash. It's glorious. That God would convict a person of his sin. Call him to confess. Call him to repent. Change his heart so that he would say, where else can I go? As Peter said, you alone have the words of life. No, that is God drawing that man or woman or child to himself and saying, come, dear one, come. And it's, it's beautiful. It's what has happened to you. It's what has happened to me. This man who was a scandal in the past, a scandal and a scoundrel, is now saying things that almost move us to tears. He says in verse uh, 8 and 9, these emotive statements, he says to his father, Send the lad with me. Judah says this. The lad is an, it's not that, that Benjamin was young. It is a term of endearment. <clears throat> it is a term of affection. Not just Benjamin, not just the son of Rachel. Send the lad with me and we will arise and go. And he says, so that we may live and not die, Father. And he quotes the very words that Jacob has said. The very words that Joseph has said. As God called them and used their mouths so that they could break, He could break their conscience and so that they might live and not die, turn from this way. And He says, both you, Father, and our little ones, so that we might live and not die. He's reasoning with His Father. This is life and death, Father. It's not just about me and my family. It's about all of us. And then He says... And I will be surety for him. You know, surety is an old English word. But it's a word that you know well. It's collateral. What will you give me as you leave so that I may know that you will return? And Judah says, I give myself. Benjamin said, I give my sons, I'll, I'll give you my kids. Judah takes it a step further and says, I will give you myself, Father. 
to ensure that I will bring your son, the one whom you love, that I will bring him home. He says, if I do not bring him back to you, to set him before you, then let me, let me bear the blame forever. Again, Reuben offers his two sons. Judah offers himself. He's not offering bracelets. He's not offering rings as he did in chapter 38. Remember when he had slept with a prostitute and she says, what will be surety? And he gives her rings and he gives her a goat and he gives her his staff. Now Joseph is saying to his father, I give you me. I will be surety for Benjamin. He's making a covenant pledge. He's saying, I will stand between Benjamin and any danger that threatens him. I will come between him and it. I will be guilty forever if I don't bring Benjamin back to this home to have him stand before your face. I will do absolutely everything if he does not come back. All blame will be on me forever. And if chapter 38 is a view of how Judah is unlike his greater son, the one who would come out of Judah, the lion, then nowhere is Judah more like his greater son, the lion of the tribe of Judah, than here in this chapter. And is this not the way the Lord Jesus Christ is? The lion of Judah to his father. Has Christ not said in this eternal council of peace between father, son, and spirit, in that great everlasting covenant of redemption, was this not the way the Lord Jesus Christ said and judged your case and my case, saying to the Father, I will be surety for him. I will be surety for her. I will bring him. I will bring her to you. And if I don't, then let all the guilt fall upon me, Father. Let the curse and the blame be upon me. Put their welfare into my hands. I will stand, Christ will stand between them, us, and any adversity and adversary that comes our way. Christ says, entrust them, O Father, into my care. I will be surety for them. What other hope is there, dear ones, today? What other hope do we have to see the joys of heaven? Uh, what other hope is there that we will enter into that place which the Lord Jesus Christ said in my father's house? There are many rooms. What other hope is there? Other than Jesus Christ, who says in that glorious redemption, I will be surety for them. And if I don't bring them back. Then let me bear the blame forever. One theologian has said, If Christ does not bring every one of his people home, he has more to lose than we. We will lose our souls. 
but he will lose his glory and his honor. Christ has more to lose. Having pledged, having said, I will be surety for them. And dear ones, we can be certain of this. Christ has not failed to bring and will not fail to bring us home. Christ has risen. And in doing so, he has brought many sons and they are still coming to glory. And it is the glory that he had before the foundation of the world, the glory that he will not yield nor give to another. All glory belongs to him. Christ has promised that all that the Father has given to him, that he will not lose a one, that he will surely bring every one of his children home, and that he will not fail, and that he has not failed in that act of redemption. He will not and has not and will never lose a one. Isn't beautiful? Isn't it beautiful? And isn't Judah a beautiful picture of the type of redemption that Christ has accomplished on our behalf? Judah stirs himself to action for the good of Benjamin and for the good of his whole family. He says, he also says, and if we had not delayed, we could have gone and come back twice already. We need to do this now. There's a lesson as well that George Lawson points out, saying, Surely we might all have enjoyed more happiness than we do if we had always observed this rule. And here's the rule. To defer nothing till tomorrow that ought to have been done today. Don't put things off till tomorrow. Do it now. I remember uh, this old, that old video that went viral years ago by Shia LaBeouf. Some of you may know what that is and who he is. He's the old Even Stevens and he's just screaming at the top of his lungs, just do it. Whatever it is. Whatever you are planning on doing, and I'm speaking to myself, do it. Don't wait. Especially when it comes to your service and devotion to God. Do it. Here we see the scepter beginning to rise from Judah. Coming to eminence and preeminence in Israel. For Judah, the results are coming in. Early results. And so far, Judah is doing well. How are you doing in your exams? Are you doing well? Or are you doing poorly? Secondly, Jacob's test. And there is also Jacob. He's still in the exam room, isn't he? He's been taking the exam in God's good providence, but also in understanding who God is. And let me just say to you, I think because the scriptures say so, he's not doing very well. Not very well at all. He has forgotten so much of what he's learned. It is as though he's in the exam room, and we know we've all been there, and he's just drawing a blank. I, I know the answer is in there somewhere. I just, I just can't remember it at this moment. Because he says in chapter 42, oh, all these things are against me. 
All of these things are against me. My son, my little one, uh, as a child, a smaller child, his favorite cartoon to watch was Pooh Bear. There's a character on there named Eeyore. And if you know anything about uh, the adventures of Winnie the Pooh and know anything about Eeyore, Eeyore is a downer. How are you doing today, Eeyore? I could be better. Wish my life wasn't so hard. They're having adventures all around them, but Eeyore just doesn't seem to be happy no matter how good things seem to be. Jacob has this Eeyore effect on his life right now. Nothing is good. Everything is against him. And it's because something has been taken from him. Someone has been taken from him. And this one that has been taken from him has been the very apple of his eye. It's as if he can no longer see without this one who was the very heart of his heart. But it seems now in the 43rd chapter that the fog is beginning to clear. That the, the mist is beginning to clear. And, and though it seems as though Joseph was his eyes, it seems as though God is giving to him eyes once again. And to realize, Joseph is not your eyes. I am your eyes, God is saying to Joseph, to Jacob. It is as though his mind that was drawing a blank for so long is finally remembering, oh yes, that's the answer. And everything is beginning to come back. This is what has happened to Jacob. It is as if Jacob begins the exam by writing his name, Jacob, at the top of his page. But now in the 43rd chapter, almost toward the end of his exam, he's almost done with this test and he says, wait a minute, let me go back to the beginning, scribbling out or erasing his name. My name is not Jacob. My name is Israel. Remembering who he is in the midst of a test. Isn't that like us so often? We were in the midst of a test and we're failing and failing miserably. And then all of a sudden, God, by his grace, reminds you who you are. Notice in this chapter, not once is Jacob called Jacob anymore. In this chapter, he is repeatedly over and over and over again called Israel. And this is significant. It is also significant that other than one passing reference to the son of Israel, they, they are coming down, which is when they are coming down uh, to Egypt, the sons of Israel. We haven't heard the name of Israel since the 37th chapter of the book of Genesis. And brothers and sisters, that is an elapse of almost 40 years. It was when Israel sent Joseph to his brothers. 
now he's Israel again. Now he's the prince of God again. He's like a man who has awoken out of his sleep. And you don't want to be sleepy during an exam. And you definitely don't want to go to sleep during an exam. And as, as if God Almighty has awoken, awoken this man. And he is himself again. He's Israel. He's the pilgrim of half a century. And he's on his feet once again. This old man on his feet once again. Staff in his hand once again. His eye fixed on those foundations whose builder and maker is God once again. All things are not against him. God is for him and working all these things together for good, not for ill. We see in verses 11 through 14, he comes to his senses. He comes to terms with the situation. In chapter 42, he is depressed of the situation. In 43, he comes to terms with the situation and says, if it must be so now, if this is what God has determined, if you will, then let's do this. It's so different from the woe is me, Eeyore kind of attitude that he had in the last chapter, isn't it? He's coming to terms with the situation. If it must be so, if it must be this way, if it is only by bringing Benjamin down, then let it be. You'll notice how he begins to take charge of the situation and we didn't read about this in verse in chapter 42, but when he sent them down to Egypt, uh, he sent them down with a, a command. But now uh, he's kind of giving them directions on what they must do and what they must bring. Take fruit of the land. Take double the money. Maybe what was given to you was an oversight. Now, just kind of a side note, what they took to Egypt was also the same things that were on the caravan that was going to Egypt when Joseph was first sold into slavery. Take the fruit. Take the best of the land. Take the money that was in your sack and take extra just in case. And then he says to them, and take your brother. He says the hardest thing and gives to them the hardest thing that he had to give up. Take your brother. And he doesn't say take Benjamin, does he? Take your brother. It's a term of affection. You are all brothers. You are all in this family. Take your brother. Arise and go to the man. What is more, you see Israel praying. And may God Almighty have mercy on you. May God Almighty give you mercy. Israel's on his feet again. God Almighty, El Shaddai, he calls him. The last time we read of God Almighty or El Shaddai was Genesis 35. Even longer period of time. It's the same place where God says to Jacob, you are no longer Jacob. You are Israel. And after naming uh, Jacob Israel, God says to Jacob, I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and company of nations will come from you. 
And again, God repeated the promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. He sees his family. Jacob sees, Israel sees his family going into a perilous situation. Going into the very mouth of death it may be. And it seems the sight of going into Egypt to the man who seems so cruel and so tyrannical was too much for him. What if I lose my children? That's what sight says. That's what Jacob says. But here Israel is now saying by faith, he's holding fast unto the promise of God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. He's trusting that that promise that was given to him when God introduced himself as El Shaddai, it still holds true today. I will make you a company of nations. I will make you fruitful. You will multiply. May that God who gave that promise go with you. Kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I give to you. It's your land. It's very much like what Abraham did for Isaac. When God said and called Abraham, give me your son, the son whom you love, give him to me. And Abraham in faith gave his son Isaac to the Lord, knowing that if God took his life, God could surely also raise it. And here is Jacob doing the same with Benjamin and all of his sons, giving them to God as it were. Trusting that if God takes their life, he could also raise them up again. Do you see that? He's wrestling with God again. El Shaddai. God Almighty give you mercy. He's praying again. And he's submitting to God's providence. I believe that that is the words, or that is meant by the words in verse 14. If I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. It's a, a Job-like statement. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's a statement of submission. And I believe we see triumph in this exam. Israel, you passed. All the sons are leaving for Egypt. And yet, once again, Jacob is stripped. He's left alone. Remember the last time he was left alone? God came and wrestled with him. And now here he is sending all of his sons. He, he kept one back before. Now all of them are gone and he is left alone to wrestle with God. But no longer as Jacob. As God's prince. And once again, God touches him where it hurts. And where it hurts most is not in the hollow of his thigh, but in the sun of his love. Once again, it is as though God is saying to him, you are not Jacob, you are Israel. You are a prince of God. Jacob says, my children are not Israel says, take Benjamin with you. Jacob says, I have nothing, absolutely nothing left. Israel says, take the best fruit of the land. Take the myrrh and the honey and the spices and the balm. 
Jacob says, all of these things are against me. Israel says, God Almighty be with you. Jacob says, I will go down to the grave in sorrow. And Israel says, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. But I hand it all over to God. Many of you, many of us are in the same exam. But what we need as we sit in this exam is not a change in our circumstances. What we need is faith in the covenant God, the Lord Almighty, El Shaddai. We've seen Jacob in a number of tests since we've been first introduced to him. And I believe that the two tests that he has taken over and over again, the title, if you will, of those tests at the top of the page are, Who is your God? And who are you? I think that's the test that we often always take. Who is your God? And who are you? Do you notice that Jacob is constantly stripped of everything? Is your birthright your God? I'll send you away. Is your wife your God? I'll keep her from you. Is your son Joseph your God? I'll send him away too. I will keep taking every false God away from you until you realize there is only one. Lord God Almighty. Everything that was most valuable to him in his own eyes, as Brother Bobby was saying this morning, family, treasures, they will all be stripped until you who belong to Christ love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. You will constantly be stripped of it all until you pass that test. Nothing else. And who are you? I am Israel. What we need, dear ones, either for the first time or again, is to remember that our name is no longer what it was. God has given us a new name. And we are new creatures in him. Some of us find ourselves in difficult providences, exams that we don't want to take, relationships that give us trouble, finances, circumstances, and we may say, all these things are against me. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget who God is. Don't forget to pray and submit to His perfect providence. Hold on to Him and say like Israel, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Let's finally move to the last and shorter Joseph's test. Joseph is sitting through a test of patience and self-control, isn't he? And forgiveness. He's also sitting through a test of brotherly love and kindness, which is hard. 
There is a very hard question in Joseph's exam. One that he has probably been asking himself or has been asked for the past 20 years. Do you and should you forgive your brothers? Should you treat them with brotherly kindness if you ever did see them again? I wonder how we would answer that question on Joseph's paper if he were to look over (laughs) to our paper. and How did you answer that one? I wonder what the answer would be on your paper. It seems to me that this is the question that we most often get wrong. And I myself miss this question all the time. Will he forgive? With all of the pain, all of the betrayal, will he forgive? And we must make a distinction between the willingness to forgive and the actual act of forgiveness. If a brother repents, how often will you forgive him? I am going to be with family, at least blood family, this weekend. Please pray for me. And my wife asked me the question, how do you feel knowing that you are going to see some of the family members who have hurt you and your family, us, in a variety of ways? My response to her was, I feel fine. I forgive them. We will never be close again. Unless there is a dramatic repentance in their life. But I will carry myself with respect. And I will treat them with the same respect that is due to every person made in the image of God. Let that be true of those who maybe have come to this church at one point or another. And you may see them again. Forgive them. Respect So that when you walk away, they can say about you and say about uh, your attitude. That is a man or woman of God, regardless of your attitude or regardless of what you may, they may have and how they may have hurt you in the past. Be a man of God. Be a woman of God. That's easy to say, isn't it? We see Joseph. And Joseph shows us it's not easy. What I just said, easier said than done. How do we know? Because he cannot contain his emotions. Joseph is constantly leaving the room to weep. He's constantly coming to the, coming face to face with these who have hurt him and excusing himself to let out all of the pain and all of the emotion that is inside of him. It's not easy. You see him holding it in. What self-control? What self-control? Some of us in our dreams, we imagine the, the drop kicks and the spinning roundhouses that we would do to those if we saw them once again. And here is Joseph containing all of the pain that's wanting to just burst out and will burst out eventually. He desires to to embrace his brothers, to show them love, to show them kindness and forgiveness. 
In verse 30, he hurries out because the Bible says that he stirred, emotionally stirred over his brother. He has this intense willingness and affection to forgive. I think he's been willing to forgive this whole time. I think for those who have hurt us, we could honestly say, deep down in the heart, in my heart of hearts, I am actually willing to forgive. But we want to see what Joseph's trying to see. But have you repented? I, I want to give you all of the love and affection that I truly have for you. But show me a little shame. He's testing. And he's being tested. To see if they have truly repented and if it's real. He's so eager to forgive. To give the transaction of forgiveness. But you see him working on their consciences. He's wounding. He's convicting and then in this chapter, we see him giving kindness and goodness to them. A, a goodness and kindness that is at the brim and spilling over into their laps. And he is uh, doing what Paul says is done when someone experiences the goodness of God. Draws them to repentance. We have to ask ourselves this question, is there a willingness in us to forgive? Is there a great a desire to forgive in repentance? And here are these brothers. And they have no idea who he is. They have no idea that he is the one that they have so badly mistreated. They have no idea of the relationship that they have with him. He's their brother. And they have no idea of the intense love that was in his own heart for them. His own desire, his own willingness to pardon them. The tears that he's holding back and the tears that he sheds over them. My wife, in discussing this uh, lesson or sermon with her, reminded me, I think he really did love them. He's always loved them. He was uh, second to the youngest, looking up to his brothers. What little brother... Uh, does not at one point or another, I'll say that very carefully, at one point or another, look up to their siblings. For me, my older brothers were my uncles when I was growing up. Wanted to be just like them. Wanted to talk like them. My wife and I were watching a video of our family uh, Christmases at one point, and she says, you're trying to be like them. I was 16. Yeah, I was trying to be like them. Until all of a sudden you get older. And you know that God has placed you on a new path. And you realize that the other one is one that they are not on. But you know that God is working on them and you want to see. Have they changed? I'll find out this weekend, won't I? He doesn't reveal who he is, but is looking for early signs of repentance. And it's the same with the Lord Jesus Christ. With Christ and the gospel, we come to see the one who has acted so kindly to us. 
the one that we have pierced. The one that we have badly mistreated. And we have no idea of his willingness to pardon our sin. We have no idea of his desire even to pardon our sin. He's even weeping over us and saying, Oh, children, oh, children, how often has I, have I desired to draw you near to myself? We have no idea of how much love he is filled with. But this analogy between Christ and Joseph breaks down at some point, doesn't it? Because we do have an idea. We may not get it in terms of extent, but we cannot deny the fact of it. Christ has laid down His life for the Beloved. Christ has given to us what we never deserved. And what we could never earn nor pay back. He has given to us His perfect righteousness if we would only repent of our sin and turn to Him. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Joseph's brothers could not see this, but we see it. Lord's day after Lord's day. It is in the Lord's Supper. It is in our preaching. We proclaim it when we pray. We remember it when we were baptized. There's a passage in Micah 7 that says he delights to pardon. He delights to pardon. And that judgment is a strange work even. The brothers come in this ongoing test that we will consider more next time. And they come with guilty consciences. In verse 18, they're suspicious. They, we, they've been brought into, into Joseph's house. What are we doing here? Why are we in here? I know why we're here. We've been invited into his house because he's going to enslave us all. And listen to what they say. And he's going to take our donkeys. He's the prime minister of Egypt. He wants your 12 donkeys, 11 donkeys. This is how suspicious these men are. It's too good to be true to them. We've been invited into his house. And do you see the reaction of, of Joseph? Joseph brings these men into his home. He, he calls his servant, prepare a feast. My brothers have come. Listen to the way I'm saying it. He sees his brothers coming. Prepare a feast, he tells his servants. His servant, my brothers have come. Bring them into my home. We will drink together. We will dine together. I wonder if you know what that sounds like. Does it not sound like the prodigal son? Who had sinned, who had squandered his life. And yet who comes back home in repentance and the father sees him from a, from a far off distance and says to his servants, prepare a meal. He runs to his, to his son, calls his servants, prepare a meal. My son was dead and now he's alive. This is what's taking place with Joseph and his brothers. They were dead and God is bringing them to life. And it's the same with you and I. We were dead. The Lord Jesus drew us to Himself. He prepares a table for us. 
He dines with us. And we'll talk about this more next week as we partake of our Lord's Supper. But we were dead and now we're alive. May I say to you, if you are outside of Christ, God is coming again. And while you have time, accept the invitation that He is giving to you. And if you come, He promises He will never cast you out. Paul echoes the desire of Christ in saying, My desire is for Israel that they would be saved and that you too would be saved. And this is the heart of Christ. We are in the testing room. The results are coming in. And I pray that you are doing well this morning. And if not, take this as your warning. Repent. Turn to Christ. Come to His table. And dine with Him. Let's pray.